0: Fred, that was very, very kind of you. You know, he he didn't promise though to keep it short. I basically threatened. I said, Fred, once you're done introducing me, I'm going up there and I have the microphone. So, so you no. Know. It's a it's a great privilege to be here this morning to open up God, open up God's word and preach. I bring you greetings from from our elder team at Placerita Bible Church and our senior pastor, uh, Adam Tyson. You know, personally, uh, myself, and then our elder team as well, we are very thankful for the work of the ministry that goes on here at Church of the Canyons. We consider you guys a, a, a brother church, a sister church, however you want to define that, uh, and, and in particular, you know, the work of a couple of your elders, both, uh, both Matt and, and Fred, who I consider to be very dear friends. Uh, many years ago, when I was at Village Christian, I had the opportunity to both teach and coach Matt Davis when he was in my sixth grade math and science class. so, And you can tell how much I love sixth grade math and science because I've been out of that now for 19 years. so, uh, And I also had the opportunity to coach him in, when he was my starting center on our JV football team. So when you look at Matt, you can tell he's obviously an offensive lineman there. Uh, uh, Fred, I've known Fred since um, George Bush was elected, and that's the first George Bush. Uh, and Fred told you a little bit about our background but like but um but you guys know Fred and just his his loyalty and his love, which was so much on display and how he, how he cared for his wife, Dodie, and how he, he cares for, especially the, the trials that the family's going through right now. Um, Fred, you're just a faithful servant. and We thank you for, for, uh, for your ministry here. You know, something about Fred, you know, he's been on every road in America, and if he hasn't been on it, he can tell you how to get there. So like Waze and Google Maps has really neutralized his ability on getting places fast, so, And before we get started, I just want you to know that we've been praying for your church as an elder team at Placerita. Uh, we've been praying for you guys in your search for a senior pastor. Uh, our church has walked that path before. Uh, we know that it often brings great difficulty. Um, but when you inevitably get those questions from your friends who are asking you, hey, when are you guys going to get a pastor? Please let me remind you and encourage you that you do have a pastor. In fact, you got, you got five of them. Pastors Bill, Pastor Matt, Pastor Chris, Pastor Fred, and Pastor Dwayne, they may not have that title, um, but they love this church, they labor to lead this church, and they're faithfully feeding you uh, from the Bible, whether it's from this pulpit, whether it's in a Sunday school class. Uh, when you guys, when you meet for breakfast, you're gathered in a small group, and just the conversations I've had, in particular with Matt and Fred, but, but just knowing that group as a whole, uh, just their faithfulness to COC is to be greatly commended, uh, even as we join with you guys in praying that God would bring the right man at the right time uh, to fill that, that pastoral role here at COC. So with that, let me uh, ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And follow along while I read our our text for today, uh, found in verses 9 through 11. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Please bow your heads as I pray for our time in God's word this morning. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the work of salvation that you have done in the lives of of many who are here today and the many testimonies of salvation that are represented in this church as we consider the depravity that we were saved out of and the righteousness of Christ that we now possess because of your grace in our lives. Father, we pray for our time this morning. We pray that as a church that we would respond to your word and have a renewed commitment to growing in Christ, to flee from sin and want to know and obey your word. We pray for the ministry of the church here at COC, that it would continue to be a place where your word is faithfully preached, and the saints minister to one another. We pray that in all that is happening in this church this morning, that that you would be glorified. Please bless the preaching of your word now, and may it be your truth and not my words that we hear and respond to today. Well, Fred and Matt can attest to the fact that I am a huge USC football fan. I somewhat apologize for the sports illustration, but I think it's very appropriate for our text today in First Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, plus, my great interest in life are history, particularly military history and sports, so you're going to get a sports illustration uh, this morning. In 2001, Pete Carroll was the new head football coach at USC. Even they had not been very good for some time. And even when even with a new coach, throughout that first season, they continued to struggle and lose games in very unique ways, which were frustrating for fans such as myself. Late in the season, the team's fortunes turned though in a road game at Arizona with an interception that was returned for a touchdown. And in the locker room after the game, Coach Carroll emphatically told the team, you do not have to lose anymore. His point being that they were no longer the bad team of the prior years, but were now capable of being successful on the field. That game has been looked at by many as the the turning point for a USC team that in the coming years went on to win two national championships and only lost nine more games over the next seven seasons. For USC football, that game was important because it changed their mindset about who they who they were. They learned they could experience victory. As believers, this text in 1 Corinthians 6 points us to a much greater truth than the ability to win football games. See, all of us were unrighteous. All of us were dead in our trespasses, but even better than not losing anymore, none of us have to sin anymore. Each of us can and should experience victory over sin in our Christian walk. Verses 9 and 10 are going to identify people with certain sins, but if you are a Christian tonight, your identity is in Christ not a particular sin. Let me give you some brief background on this chapter so you understand what Paul is addressing in this chapter. The book of 1 Corinthians was written and had many points of correction for the Corinthian church. You know, as a church, when we read uh, Paul's epistles, we want to identify with the Thessalonian church, not so much the Corinthian church. But, in the beginning of chapter 6, Paul is telling them to stop taking their grievances against others in the church to civil authorities to address rather than seeking reconciliation through the church. So what was happening in the Corinthian church was that you had believers who had grievances against other believers. Instead of dealing with them reconciling themselves, they're taking them to the court and they're suing each other to seek restitution. As part of his explanation as to why the Corinthian church... And all believers, for that matter, who read this today, should not look to the world to resolve differences within the church or among Christians. Paul contrasts the nature and actions of the world with the new nature that all Christians possess because they are in Christ. So in these three verses, Paul's instructing the believer that he or she is not trapped by the sins they formerly committed, but that those sins are past. They have a new nature, a nature that enables them to obey Because they are in Christ. So Paul instructs us by making two key verses, uh, two key points in verses 9 through 11. The two key points Paul reminds us of are, one, remember who you were before Christ. And then two, know who you are in Christ. So that's going to be the framework for what we're looking at this morning. Remember who you were before Christ. Know who you are in Christ. So let's look at the first point. Remember who you were before Christ. In verse 9, Paul emphasizes what the Corinthian church should know. That the unrighteous, those who have rejected and do not believe the gospel, are outside the kingdom and have no hope. Those who reject the gospel are characterized by their sin. And Paul then goes into a list describing the unrighteous. He begins with fornicators. Uh, In the ESV it is translated the sexually immoral. This is describing all types of sexual sin, including fornication and pornography. Obviously, our society today is no different than the first century, in many ways much worse. Uh, Our world has grown more perverse and more committed to immorality, and we've seen this, haven't we, at the heart of the pro-abortion movement with the goal that women can have a complete sexual freedom without consequence, and that anyone who would question this desire wants to impede uh, women's rights. Even if the same culture can't define for us what a woman is. Sadly, such immorality takes place with greater ease and more frequency due to the accesses available through the internet, in our smartphones, ways of sinning that the Corinthian church wouldn't have even been able to, um, to do. He goes on beyond the fornicators though and then talks about idolaters. Idolatry is simply anyone or anything that is worshipped in the place of God. Given where its placement is in the sentence, there's probably an element of sexual sin tied into that practice of idolatry. But often we do not think of idolatry as something that's happening in our society. We, you know, when we think of idolatry, we think of like the Israelites worshiping Baal or, or um, the, the, the Canaanites worshiping Molech. We don't think of idolatry happening in our society, but it occurs whenever something or someone is more important than God. Often we see this in, sometimes in the pursuit of a career where the, the main goal in life is to achieve the highest rank or the highest status or the highest pay grade in our career. We can see idolatry in our child's education status or our child's sports career. Uh, each of us have seen families that have, you know, that is tempted with the idol of, of travel baseball, travel soccer. There could be the idol of having the perfect family People make idols out of pleasure or acquiring expensive cars and toys and vacations. There's lots of things that are we are tempted with to make an idol, to make more important than God. And the world embraces those idols. 30 states the adulterer will not inherit the kingdom. This is describing both the married person who sins with someone else and the unmarried person who sins with a married, with a married person. Paul goes on then to state, talking uh, that the effeminate and those who practice homosexuality are outside the kingdom. And sadly, this being uh, the month that it is, we've been unable to avoid this month that our world has moved beyond even just mere toleration and has been given to open celebration uh, of, of such debauchery. I mean, just look at the uh, the response to the five players on baseball's Tampa Bay Rays, who, as Christians, did not want to wear a rainbow patch on the, the pride night, whatever that means, because they see homosexuality as sinful um, where the world demands celebration of such sin. Paul then points out thieves, those who take what does not belong to them without offering compensation are also facing condemnation. Stealing can take place in a variety of forms, of course. The image that comes to mind first are the images of people going into stores and simply taking items off the shelves However, we might see this in, in stealing time or resources from our employers. He goes on with this list, this is a, with this extensive list. He's talked about fornicators. He's talked about idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves. Then he moves on to the covetous, those who are not content with what they have, but instead eagerly try or want to get more for themselves. And often at the expense of others. And then Paul concludes his list of who we were in the flesh and the way the world is around us by looking at revilers and swindlers. Revilers are those who make accusations of others and attack the righteous. And we saw this on display, didn't we, in the riots of 2020? 2020. And then swindlers, those who are constantly scheming to take advantage of others financially or for other reasons. Those who work harder at committing, at fulfilling some scheme than actually just doing the job before them. And any of us that have a phone have experiences with the phone calls we get at all hours of the day of people attempting to swindle us. So this isn't the only place in Scripture we see a list of specific sins laid out uh, to show us how evil man is apart from Christ and how evil we were before we were in Christ. In Galatians five nineteen through 21, Paul describes and he expands a bit on those who live in the flesh. That is, those who are living, those who are unbelievers. In Galatians uh, 19 to 21, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and in case it's not listed there, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, we see that recurring statement in Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 6, and we see it in Galatians 5, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, that list in Galatians, it goes a bit deeper in the description of those who live in the flesh, and it also hits on some areas, um, as we know, described, that described us before we were saved. And sadly, we all see all too often in believers today um, because they've not made it a priority To put such sins away. So we can look at things like uh, outward sins, like outward sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, and we can be thankful that those sins have no place, but we conveniently ignore or forget when envy or jealousy for someone else's status creeps in. How do we respond in the flesh when someone else gets that promotion at work or when someone else experiences God's good fortune? or when we chalk up fits of anger to personality rather than to our own selfishness. We see and we allow rivalries and divisions to grow uh, that, that the church begins to look not all that much different from the world around us. So what was keeping us out of the kingdom was not just that we lacked knowledge of who God was. It was not just an intellectual decision. It was not that we had just one option of many to enter the kingdom. The fundamental problem that each and every one of us faced is that when we were, we were in open rebellion against God and those were merely the visible demonstration of that rebellion. Ephesians 2 describes this for us so well. Uh, please turn with me there to Ephesians chapter 2. And I think it's helpful to keep a finger in Ephesians 2 because Ephesians 2 kind of does the same comparison of, of who we were before and who we are now. So in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." Ephesians 2.1 reminds us that we were dead in our sin. Since we were obviously not physically dead, Paul's writing about being spiritually dead. There was nothing we could do to bring glory to God. Even our externally uh, morally good actions were devoid of any meaning or any benefit. In verse 2, we see the... uh, we see the past tense nature of living in the flesh, something we're going to look at more deeply here in a moment. But we also read that we were following the course of this world. To live this way indicates that we were living in a way that was contrary to the life we were called to by God. Verse 3, he elaborates on that even more, showing that the way we lived, regardless of the specific sins committed, were motivated by our passions. Regardless of, we were motivated by our passions, which were dead toward God, and the desires of our body and our mind, which were centered on pleasing ourselves rather than on pleasing God. Pleasing God had no place at all in our mindset. And it certainly does not exist in the unbelieving world that's around us today, which is no different from the world when 1 Corinthians 6 was written. Like all mankind, anyone and anywhere apart from Christ, we were facing God's wrath. We were spiritually dead. The specific lists we have in our, in our text in 1 Corinthians 1 and the ones we see in like Galatians 5 and then we also see in Romans 1 are helpful because they point us to specific sins where our fleshly nature was on display. Often it's easy to dismiss the truth that we were sinners who only faced judgment even when we read it. We read a phrase such as "You were dead," until we're confronted with specific sins that we know we have committed, either physically, outwardly, or inward, or, or inwardly, internally. When we see the specific sins, we know we have no leg to stand on before a holy God. We were truly deserving of His wrath. So, my main purpose this morning is to speak to the church, to speak to believers, and to encourage believers. As we look to the second part of this passage, there's some here today where verses 9 and 10 are still descriptive of you. These sins and others are still regularly evident in your life. So even if no one here sees it, your family probably does, and you certainly know it. So you have no desi- And you have no desire to put them off. So whether you admit it or not, you love your sin. There's no desire to repent, meaning to confess it and turn away from it. So if that's you today... Let today be the day you say, enough. I'm done living for myself and my desires. Recognize that you are dead. Recognize you're facing wrath. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. So that gospel calls before you, if verses 9 and 10 is still you this morning, that gospel calls before you to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and know that he paid the penalty that you so rightfully deserve, that all of us so rightfully deserved. So we saw in our first point to remember who we were before Christ, and it's not a pretty picture. We were spiritually dead people, unable to do anything for God's glory, and we were only living for what our flesh desired. Let's look to our second point, though, where we find encouragement and strength to live the Christian life. So that second point is know who you are in Christ. We want to remember who we were before Christ. We want to know who we are in Christ. You do not have to sin anymore. In this list we went through, we see some of the most vile and disgusting sins we can imagine. So even if the sins that were descriptive of you before coming to Christ are not found in this list, we know we were all dead. We were all lost. But verse 11 shows us that this is all in the past. Such were some of you. Such were some of us. Our confidence that we do not have to sin anymore comes from the knowledge that our ability to obey does not come from somewhere inside us, but it comes from the work of a holy God. And this work is described for us here in our text. Paul writes in verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So this list of washed, sanctified, justified, it's not a detailed treatise on the complete order of salvation. However, what Paul is doing there is he's highlighting key aspects of the work of salvation which are relevant to pointing out to the Corinthians that with their their radical new nature as opposed to what they were like in the flesh. When Paul says that we were washed, he's speaking of the idea of regeneration. Uh, The book Biblical Doctrine describes regeneration as, quote, a cleansing from sin, and a creation of spiritual life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul explains it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is one reason why the doctrine of creation is so important. If God can create the world out of nothing, he can create in us a new nature as well. And that's what he does in regeneration. This new nature is not something we create or earn for ourselves. We are the product of a work of creation done in us. Look back at Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. You can either turn back or listen as I read it. It But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When we see those words, but God, those are some of the greatest words anyone can read. Once we were dead and depraved, our actions and motivations were sinful. What we were deserving was death, but then we read the words, but God. He did not give us what we deserved. He was merciful. We deserve judgment. However, God loved us, those who are in Christ, and made us alive. Now we can respond spiritually. We have a new nature. As a theologian Sinclair Ferguson has written, quote, regeneration is as all-pervasive as depravity. While the regenerate individual is not yet as holy as he or she might be, there is no part of life which remains uninfluenced by this renewing and cleansing work. That's us today. We are washed. There is no part of our life which remains uninfluenced by the work of washing, the work of regeneration that Christ has done in us. Maybe let me illustrate it this way. When we think of the idea of washing, of regeneration, picture a child who has been playing in the mud and they are just covered in filth. Uh, For those of you with kids, you might have have the opportunity to experience that sometime this summer. But there's no way you would allow this child into your car, let alone your house, and everything they touch becomes dirty. You can track them wherever they have gone because they are just covered in filth. There's no way they're going to clean themselves up. So the best method is just to hose them off. On a greater, more sobering scale, we were like this in our sin. But we were washed. We were regenerated. And the washing we received was not just externally taking the mud off. It was a complete internal washing in that we received a new nature. So Paul talks about being washed. Then he talks about, and then he says, you were sanctified. You were sanctified. When we speak of being sanctified, we're speaking of being set apart. We're talking about obeying God's word, pursuing holiness. And the word placement in this verse is interesting. Because often when we talk about salvation... We talk about in the sense of there's justification, God declaring us righteous. Then there's sanctification, the process of putting off sin and putting on Christ's righteousness. And then glorification, that day when we will all be free of sin and death. Don't we look forward to that day? Here Paul puts sanctification though before justification. So that raises the question of why does he do that? And when we look at the context of this passage, he wants his Corinthian readers to see the contrast in their new nature as believers from that fleshly lifestyle of the unbelievers around them. So while the world is dead in their sin, unable to obey, completely depraved, the Christian is alive. The Christian is obeying. The Christian has a desire to be like Christ, a desire that wasn't there when they were in the flesh. So that's why there's the emphasis on being set apart for holiness, on sanctification. When we speak of sanctification, we often speak of it in a couple different senses. There's the first sense is what's commonly called positional sanctification, where we're set apart by the Holy Spirit and we're made holy. Paul describes this in 1 Peter 1, or Peter describes this in 1 Peter 1, 2, where he talks about the elect being sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ. They are set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. Because of the position we have then, through Christ's experience, we have... We have the power to obey. And that's the progressive sanctification part where we become more and more like Christ. Uh, Example would be uh, the the police officer. You know, not anyone can just go out and enforce the laws. But because of the position, now they're able to enforce the laws and do the things they've been called to do. It's the same thing for us as believers. We are given that position of, of being holy. We are set apart for holiness. So now we can do the things Christ has called us to do. Each of us are made saints. We hear that term saints and we think of the Catholic connotation of someone who achieves a special status in the church. Every single Christian, every single person who knows Christ in here today is a saint. Even if we don't build statues or build a, a building in your name, every single one of us is a saint. As MacArthur's written, what makes a believer a saint is not his practical righteousness, but his positional righteousness. All believers are saints because all believers have been set apart by a holy God and have been united to the holy Lord Jesus. So we see this contrast between the flesh and those sanctified in Galatians 5. We've already seen the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21 and how those works mirror uh, our text in 1 Corinthians 6. Now look at the fruit of the Spirit, which many of you are going to be familiar with from verses 22 and 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love "...joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's not some who belong to Christ who have crucified the flesh. It is all those who belong to Christ who have crucified the flesh." All who belong to Christ are free from sin's power. It's a natural outworking of being washed and being sanctified. It's not a checklist we try to accomplish to earn God's favor. The fruit of the spirit we see in Galatians 5, that is what we nat- that's a, our natural outworking as believers. Let me illustrate it this way. When it comes to being sanctified, too often though we're trying to make peace with an enemy who's already defeated. We're united with Christ, we've been set apart by the Spirit, but we surrendered to a defeated enemy. It would be like if during World War II the Allies landed on D-Day, liberated France, defeated the German army in battle, and then right as they're driving deep into Germany they offered to surrender to the Germans or leave, or leave Europe in Germany's hands. To do so would be foolishness. Yet that's often how we act toward our own sin, by forgetting the position of strength that we possess by being in Christ. Yes, the flesh will get some shots in, but we will win. God saves us for the purpose of performing good works. Listen as I, turn, as, I, as I go back to Ephesians chapter two. We've already seen this chapter that we were made alive by God. It's a passage well known to you, but look at verses eight and 10 of Ephesians chapter two. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we understand that we're saved by grace. Knowing our depraved nature before Christ, there's no way we could perform any work that would possibly save us. We rejoice in verses 8 and 9 because of the work of grace, but we often forget verse 10. We were created for good works, that we should walk in them. Our Lord is not going to save us and then call us to obey him and be holy, and then not give us the power to obey. We are the work of his creation. So why can we obey? Because we've been washed, because we've been sanctified. And then finally, in verse 11, because we've been justified. When we talk about justification, we mean where our sin was exchanged for Christ's righteousness. We are declared righteous based on the death and resurrection of a perfectly holy Savior who did not deserve to die, but instead willingly sacrificed and suffered the cross out of love for His chosen people, our lives, remembering what we were before Christ, were in open rebellion to God. As we live selfishly for our own desires, we were at war with God, even if we didn't recognize it at the time. Romans five one shows us that though shows us though that because we are justified, we have peace with God. Like we sang this morning in the one hymn, once your enemy, now seated at your table. And that's something we can rejoice in. And that's something that gives us strength to obey because we know we've been justified. It means we are free of sin's penalty. Our penalty was paid by Christ in his death. So what is significant about our washing, our sanctification, and our justification is the person who accomplishes those things. Because it's not us. It's not some worldly leader or a cult leader. It's not accomplished by a pastor nor is it accomplished by a parent. Our washing, sanctification, and justification is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we can have confidence this morning. As Steve Lawson has said, before Christ, we worship the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But now that we are in the faith, we know the character and power of our God, the authority that comes with the Son's name, And the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who believe. This is what gives us confidence that the old nature is past tense. The old nature is defeated. And we can say, such were some of us. And we know that because of who our Savior is, we do not have to sin anymore. So Paul showed us in our text that holiness is possible for the believer by remembering who we were before Christ... And knowing who we are now in Christ. When we've come to Christ, though, we quickly realize that though we possess a new faith and a new nature, we still find ourselves sinning. We find ourselves sinning on a regular, even a daily basis. And when we find ourselves in such a situation, we're tempted to believe certain lies uh, about our about our sin as believers. I wanted to share with you just a couple of things that we might, that we might lies we might be tempted to believe uh, even, as, even as believers who are in Christ. One lie we might believe is that you are the only one who struggles with a certain sin. Could be a battle with lust, drunkenness, greed, covetousness. But you look around at those around you in your small group, youth group adult Sunday school, and you think, I'm the only one like this. No one's going to understand if I ask them to pray for me because I'm tempted in such and such a way. There's a fear of ostracism, that if I share a prayer request because of whatever the sin is I'm being tempted with or or I'm committing on a regular basis, there's a fear of ostracism. And along with that is an inward fear that you may not be able to put off whatever that sin is you're facing. And we are forgetting the power of God that you possess as a believer, that we are facing a defeated enemy. Remember what Paul writes later in this book of 1 Corinthians, though. In in, uh, chapter 10, verse 13, he writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every single temptation that you face today or this week Is similar in nature, if not identical, to the temptation being faced by others in this room. Maybe you're being tempted in any of the areas of lust described in verses 9 through 10. Those temptations are not unique to you. Maybe you're tempted to be anxious because of higher gas prices or a work situation. You're not alone, those temptations are common. God is faithful. He does not change. It is he who does not let us get tempted beyond what we're able to withstand. And he's the one that gives us a way of escape. Isn't it amazing how often we forget that truth? So the first lie you might believe is that you're the only one facing a temptation. A second lie you might face is that you might believe that you might believe is deceiving yourself through comparison. Instead of looking to Christ as our standard, we look at those around us and content ourselves with being in the middle of that group. When you approach the sin in your life with this approach, you're either content to make sure you don't look too bad or you worry that if you truly abandon this world to pursue holiness, that you cannot keep the, keep that pace or you might be considered one of those weird Christians. You know, not the normal church types, but the ones who are truly devoted. When you believe this lie, though, we fall into mediocrity. Remember that the standard Christ calls us to And the standard that he empowers us to do, to accomplish, is holiness. Remember the words of 1 Peter 1 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God doesn't want us to to be good people, he doesn't want us to mostly obey, he does not call us to be holy in some of our conduct. He does not tell us to, it's okay to hold on to a couple of sins that you can justify as being okay to indulge in occasionally. He wants you to be holy, to be separate from the world in all your conduct. And the best part is, though, is that we can do this in Christ. So there's two lies that we've been tempt, we're have we tempted to believe. That, uh, that no one's being tempted like we are and playing the comparison game. Uh, third lie is that, that many of us are tempted to believe, and in fact, I know I've heard this in counseling situations, and our other elders at PBC have, have heard this, and, and I'd venture to guess that the, same is, that the same is true here, are people who just say, I can't help it, I, I'm an angry person, I have trouble with alcohol, I, that's just the way I am. I know I've heard that exact statement. Do you know the types of statements I'm referring to? You. My family is just loud, and we argue. You don't know our culture. We're Italians. This is how we are. No offense if there's any Italians here. So, when this—it's amazing though how like every culture's got one of those things, right? That we that's just who we are, and we're tempted to believe those lies. So when this happens, though, when we believe that lie, we're flat out admitting that you think you cannot help but to sin. You're forgetting what Paul writes. Such were some of you. We do not have to sin. We do not have to fall when we are tempted. Sin no longer has power over us. So while we need to recognize those lies and be aware that we're tempted to believe any or all of those on occasion, just a few thoughts to keep in mind here. First, I'm not saying that you will, you will not ever sin as a Christian. The Bible does not promise us perfection in this life. Paul expresses this frustration himself in Romans 7 as he sees his faith on one hand but recognizes that he still does the things he hates on the other. The Bible does not promise that we'll become, uh, the Bible does promise though, that we will become more and more like Christ until one day we will be free of sin and uh, when our life on earth is either over or when Christ returns second i'm not saying that you as a believer may never commit grievous sin even some of the sins that we uh we see listed in our text in verses 9 and 10. Uh, we've had to address this on occasion at, at church and I know you've had to face this as well we have seen this with many of the heroes of the faith look at the list of those in the hall of faith in hebrews 11 and, and we see many of those who've committed grievous sin who the lord looks at and calls them and calls them faithful you have Abraham who lied about Sarah being his wife and tried to come up with a different plan to get an heir. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was angry, and it kept him out of the promised land. Samson let his lust drive his decisions that he walked that he walked away for a time. And David committed adultery and committed murder. With the believer, however, there comes confession and repentance when this sin happens. So I don't say this to give you an excuse to go out and, and commit major sin. Far from it. I say it as a word of warning. But know this, though, that when those sins happen, they happen because of a series of small compromises where at such a small step into that major sin. It's not like you're just going to go one day from walking with the Lord and jump into major grievous sin. And third, I'm not saying there may not be significant consequences For the believer who commits sin. So you're still going to sin. There's a possibility of grievous sin. And then there's also we're going to face consequences. Our God is merciful. Often the consequences we face may not be as severe as what is deserved in the moment. However, our sin may or will bring marital conflict. It may impact your employment. You might lose your job. And people may lack trust in you. At least temporarily. The consequences we face, however, may be used by the Lord to discipline us, to correct us, to draw us back to confession and repentance. And cause us to be renewed again in our pursuit of the Lord. So how do we respond after, after reading a passage like this? About seeing who we were in the flesh, but knowing who we are in Christ. That we were washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified. First, there may be some of you, as I said earlier, who know you're not in the faith, and today is the day that you have the opportunity to repent. You have the opportunity to find one of the elders, one of the deacons here, somebody you've been in a Bible study with, and say, I thought I've saved, I'm not. I, I need to repent. Let that be. Let that happen today. Second, the key to growing in Christ is knowing Christ. If we believe Christ is the... Is The person who washed us, who sanctified us, who justified us, and it's in his name we have the ability to obey. We should want to know him more than we know anything else. John 15 tells us we abide in Christ. We only abide and know Christ through the written word of scripture. When our mind is centered on the person and the work of Christ, we know him more. And this drives our desire to obey, just like we would want to obey a loving father. And we remember what John tells us in John 15 in that passage about abiding in Christ. We abide in Christ because apart from him, it's not that we can't do some things or most things. It's apart from him, we can do nothing. And finally, there may be particular sins you are holding on to or minor compromises you might be making that could open the door for the flesh to attack you. So this is where you want the body of Christ, the church. The people here at COC who love you and care for you and are caring for one another, this is where you want the church to help. You're tempted with a sin, ask someone in your Bible study or someone you know in the church to pray for you, hold you accountable. Maybe you're a spouse and you see your husband or wife giving in in certain situations and you don't know what to do. It's okay to ask for help. Talk to one of the elders. You're not gossiping or dishonoring them. You're loving them by wanting to care for them and and help them pursue holiness. Maybe your children are getting older and their sinful tendencies are starting to become more and more evident. Reach out to someone who's walked in those shoes before. Someone who knows the Lord, is walking with the Lord and ask them for their wisdom. This is true biblical love and fellowship. So, Lord willing, I pray that as we go from here this morning, understanding that we don't have to sin anymore. We have the power to obey and be holy because of Christ's work, because we've been washed, because we've been sanctified, because we've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see the way we were before Christ, we can say with Paul, such were some of us. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your work of grace. We pray that you would continue to work in us through your Son and through your Spirit. God, I pray that you would bring us to confess any sin that we are holding on to, to turn from it, and that our closeness to our Savior, to Christ, would be ever-growing. I pray that this church would continue to fulfill the ministry you have called it to do that it would bring the gospel to many in our community, and that the word would continue to be faithfully preached from this pulpit here at COC and at our church at PVC. We pray this in the name of